Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, Sunday morning. Let's see if we can knock out the bio this morning. Busy week coming up for all of us, I'm sure, for me too, especially. Um, Today's, this morning's podcast is uh, being sponsored by uh, Nisim Shaiman, who uh, has done before, is a neighbor of mine, sort of, lives in the house, the hill above me, and um, so one one of the, uh, <laughs> one of Baltimore's eligible uh, guys, with a very good partner also, by the way, if you're interested, you just contact me, that's an extra service we throw in, uh, but since he's sponsored before, he asked me, you know, his uh, mom's family, they're Yekis, they're German Jews from Western Germany, and he asked me, uh, requested I should do somebody from uh, Hess, where his uh, his mom's family's from, Hess in Cologne. And I don't always do this, but once in a while, I, do, I figure I'll do it. So I have to confine myself to thinking about famous Jews from Hess. Now, most of most of you don't even, so I'm, so I'm, I'm going to pick somebody this morning. Most of you don't even know where Hess is. This area in, in Western Germany, Frankfurt is in the state of Hess. Yeah? Um, and, uh, it's H-E-S-S-E-E, so you know from the Hessians and the, when George Washington fought them in the American Revolution, but Hess is actually a place, as soon as they say Frankfurt, mines these areas, that's old Jewish, old, old Jewish. And uh, I was thinking, you know, who do I know from Hess? Uh, but since his mom's parents and grandparents and all that are obviously from recent times, they came here to escape the Holocaust. So um, I'm going to do somebody. So a name came to me that I want to try to do this morning, Rabbi Khan, from the Samson Rainfield Hershey in Hess, from the modern period, uh, which is a very interesting period. And uh, that would be as close as I can think of something for Nisim Shimon have an idea. So I'm going to do today, try to do Rabbi Dr. Michael Khan. See, that's already we're dealing with Rabbi Doctors. Now, this is the Kufa of Hirsch and, and the term Der Hertz, or more accurately, um, it's the Mordechai Breuer book, Modernity Within Tradition, uh, which is his translation from Yiddish Orthodoxy and the Deutsches Reich uh, from Professor Breuer, which is wonderful, uh, very good, I always praise it very highly, the social history of the Orthodox Jewry in Germany in the imperial period from Kaiser Wilhelm's time it's Wilhelm one and Wilhelm two, from eighteen seventy to nineteen fourteen, nineteen eighteen. Uh, it's not that long ago, a little over a hundred years ago. This is what most of you think when you say Yekis, and it's accurate. The Yekis kind of start in the nineteenth century. Before that, the German Jews are like everybody else. Um, you know, they were late. You know, uh, just like everybody else. Now, our hero, Rabbi Doctor Michal Khan, Michael Khan, was Mamsha, a perfect example, an outstanding example of the term Derech is the era. So here we're talking about Germany um, that we talked about in other times as well. What you have to understand, as I would say over and over again, was Germany didn't exist as a single country for, forever until 1870. Instead, 
what you had were a bunch of different Medinas in Germany. And um, Jews were scattered all over the place in different ones. And what happened in 1870 was that um, Bismarck, um, the leader of, the prime minister of uh, Prussia, which was the largest state at that time, uh, was able, through various means, to combine all these states into a single federal state with the king of Prussia, which was his boss, as the emperor, the Duchess Kaiser, which means the, the emperor of the Germans, not the emperor of Germany. But the Emperor of the Germans <laughs> makes enough communion. And this was the uh, important state in Europe from 1870 down to the First World War when they screwed up. Uh, Bismarck, as I said before, was the Prime Minister of, of Prussia. The king was uh, King Wilhelm I. But Wilhelm was a, a dummy and a blockhead. But he had a tremendous virtue. He realized he was a dummy and a blockhead. That's like Gavaldi Madriga. When a person realized who they really are, so he said, Bismarck, I'm putting you in charge. I don't agree with what you're doing sometimes. I don't understand what we're doing, but I'm, I know you're a genius and I'm not. I'm a dummy. And it worked. And Bismarck created a great state. Now, listen closely. In the course of creating this state, a funny thing happened. Bismarck was anti-liberal, but he teamed up with the liberals to combine together to advance the political agenda and make a single German country, or German empire, as they call it. So our hero is going to live in this period uh, because Bismarck, who was anti-liberal, found it politically expedient to hook up with the liberals. So when the Germany was formed as a modern state, notice when they, all these different Medinas combined into a sing single federal state. And I emphasize it's federal. So, you know, Prussia was the biggest country, but you had Bavaria, for example, which is a separate kingdom in Medina within the German Empire. They... Had, it's like a, a state in America. You know, you, had, you ruled yourself locally, but nationally, you're part of the, the higher state. They had other kingdoms, Württemberg, and I don't know, Saxony. They, they had all these places, Grand Duchy of Baden, and so forth. And this is how it went under Kaiser's time. Um, now, because he hooked up with the liberals, so Bismarck was willing to a certain degree to, to, to agree to part of the liberal agenda, including the civil rights for the Jews. That's where I'm going with all this. Okay. Later on, he argued, he, he broke with the liberals, and, you know, but he didn't quite take away the civil rights from the Jews. So the reason I say that I'm interested in the period, our hero that we're going to talk about today, Rabbi Khan, was uh, in Hess. It was the Rabbi of Fulda, one of, those, one of the important uh, Jewish communities in Hess. I would say 60 miles away from Frankfurt. You see what I'm saying? That kind of thing. So, um... Because of that, um, the influence of the liberals, the Bismarckian thing, the clashes between the right wing and the left wing are all part of the story. It's a quite an interesting story. Now, in the period we're dealing with, uh, we're talking about someone, I mean, as I think you know, by the time you get to 1870, um, the modern form of the German Jewry had already been set in place. In other words, it was clear that most people not going to be from. The Orthodox was like 10-15%. The Reform and Conservative, it was, you know, mostly it was Conservative more than Reform, but it was a lot of submission together, combination of Reform and Conservative, they call Liberal Reform. Uh, they were much larger. And Secular was also large, 
So non-frum was was 85%, at least, maybe 90. And a frum, and I'm using the word frum in the widest sense, from extreme, excuse me, from extreme left to extreme right, right? A frum was 10, 15%. Now, uh, which is better than other countries. But what we know about the German orthodoxy was that was kind of vigorous, had vigorous leadership. Um, and this is fights that developed in the course of 1800s. This is Hirsch and Hildesheimer and all that. And by the time you get to 1870, you know, uh, the form was already there. So Samson Raphael Hirsch was already the uh, ideologist, the Ashkafa guy for the Orthodox Jews. Of Hildesheimer, there was a guy who started Yeshiva, the rabbinical seminary that I spoke about before, which was a combination. You go half day to Limuda Kosh and half day you go to university and produced rabbi doctors, of who our hero is one, one of the most prominent. Um, there were a couple other figures that we will encounter over here. Uh, Marcus Lehman, for example, was a rabbi in Mainz, who started the orthodox journalism, let's put it that way, uh, novels. No, it's an orthodox literature, which is a major part of our life today. You don't even realize it. How many people go into the store to buy all these books in English? Right? Every oh, every day. You know, the newest thing now is Living a Moon and all this stuff. There's a ton of people. Right? A farm store is no longer a store with Hebrew books and Hebrew letters. A farm store is a place with a ton of English books. So, that and without it, the Orthodox life in America would be truncated without the magazines and the newspapers. I'm not a fan of them, but I'm acknowledging, you know, the, the importance in their life, and that would be layman. So in other words, the Orthodox developed certain uh, forms. But I think you also know, even if you know a little bit about Sam Sarevel Hirsch, there's all these fights about who should run the communities. Uh, Orthodox reformed. They had official Kehillahs. The Orthodox wanted to break away, started their own Kehillahs. That's the story that had become firm and fixed by 1870. And this empire, which was quite prosperous, and the Jews did well there, from 1870 to the First World War, is in some ways... I want to emphasize the word, some ways, considered like a golden era, and other ways not. But if you're Yakish, this would be the golden era of the Yakis under the Kaiser, when, um, relatively speaking, the Jews had, had it okay. And the Frum, they had a lot of challenges, but they were able to meet them. Now, let's get down to brass tacks. Our hero, uh, Khan, was uh, spent his whole life in Western Germany when Hess or a little bit to the left of that, the whole, this is the area of the Rhineland, but not the Rhineland on the left side, on the right side, not the side facing France, but the other side. And old Jewish communities, Balitosis, you know, old areas, the Yiddishkeit, old, old, old. And this is a place that was hit very hard by modernity, and most of the people went off to Derek. Um, but there were some that did not. Now, our hero... Born in 1849, he lived to be 70. He died in 1919, 1920. So, um, he's a person who lived to be 70. Uh, Mom followed the golden Yekish road of the 19th century. I'll tell you what I mean. He was born in a little place in the Rhineland. Uh, but, as he, in 1849, sat with me by 1870. He's, what, 21 years old. You see what I'm saying? Um, when he's coming up, he's come from the, from, Families. You had in Germany here and there 
X number of families that just were from, even if everybody on the neighborhood was not. This in itself is remarkable, right? Usually you go along with the neighborhood. To be the only family, the only kid that's a Shammar Shabbos among your friends, the only kid that keeps coaching among your friends, that's not so easy. We had some old families that were like that. Now, he came from there. Uh, he went as a young age to, uh, well, what do you do for Chinuch? Do you just go to public school? At that time, he still had German um, Jewish elementary schools. But more and more, the German Jewish elementary schools were run by now from, or Parv, you know? So he went to Mainz, which is eh, 25 miles away. See, distances, I can't help it. I told you before. In history, people don't want to hear geography and they don't want to hear dates. And I understand that. But, it, you, you know, you can't do business like that. Everything depends when you live and where you live. So wherever he lived, he's like 20 miles, 25 miles from Mainz. So here's somebody born in 1849. When he was four years old, Marcus Lehman came and became the rabbi in Mainz. But Mainz is a community of 2,000 Jews altogether, maybe 2,500. Uh, the Rove were reform. Uh, in 1853, when he's four years old, the Cahill goes reform. They build a synagogue in Mainz, the old place of Tosos and Rashi, with an organ, you know. So the mom's going reform. At which point, a small group broke away, like Hirsch, and made it their own Cahill. It was illegal, just like Hirsch had trouble with being legal, you know. It's not America, we have separated church and state. Germany, and this is a major part of Dr. Kahn's life, is a country which is a police state. And I don't mean the term police state like you think in America, oh, it's a, uh, the Nazis. Um, police state simply means that the government regulates everything for the benefit of the public. You know where they're talking now about police state? Since there was a, cra a, a stampede in Marone the other day and all these people got killed, so now you're reading articles and people say, you know, the state should take over. The Hainu don't get in the way of celebrating Lag Bummer, but organize with the proper safety measures that if you have thousands of people come to Merom, it should be done in such a way, you know, according to safety regulations. Right exits, can't crowd too many people one time, things like that. So that's called police state. Uh, you get a lot of this now in America controversy with the corona. Should the state offer the mask, require the mask, do this, the restaurants, Back and forth. It is a pushback, you know. That's the politics nowadays. It is a pushback. But um, those who argue in favor of it say that it's necessary to have standards and regulations for, for the public benefit. So in Germany, whether you like it or not, they always have a long tradition of being a police state. And um, that means no shul can exist, no club, no pirche group can exist unless it's registered with, registered with the government and is inspected by the government. <laughs> so in Germany, you couldn't have what you have over here. Somebody runs a day school and gives zero English, even though they lie and say they do. Um, you can be in favor of that or not in favor. I'm simply saying that in America, you know, it's like Galasana. It, they, you know, it's supposed to be supervised, but it really isn't. Uh, not really. But in Germany, in these kind of countries in Europe, they take it very seriously. <laughs> so you would not have, um, in a country like Germany, a Hasidic school, which doesn't teach all the Limudic hope. And I think you follow in the news, in England and places like that, they're going after their from schools and say, you got to teach the gay stuff. Because once the state has decided that's not the curriculum, 
they're going to enforce it. That's not enough just to say, send the guy once a year and sign off and all. They send inspectors and they can, and they will close you down. See what I'm saying? Europe is not America. You just have to understand. And certainly not the state of Israel, where the state gave up regulating the firm schools long ago. So um, this is just interesting. If you're an Orthodox Jew living in the time of Sam Strave Hirsch and so forth in the 19th century, everything you do has to be run by the, has to be approved by the state. Okay? So where I'm going with this is our hero comes from a little town. When he's very young, there's this um, reform thing happens not far away in Mainz. The Orthodox group breaks away. Uh, they set up their own minion. The guy, they brought in a, a, a young rabbi, Mamish a young guy in his early 20s, Marcus Lehman, to be the rub there. Uh, Marcus Lehman was born in 1831, so he's 22, 23 years old. Strange guy in some respects. He's from the area, from Hanover. He has, I don't understand this myself. He had, he had learned by uh, Hildesheimer when he was, before Hildesheimer went to Hungary. He also got smicha from Shear, the big Moscow, was the chief rabbi of Prague. That would surprise me. Uh, the Prague still had the sheep were very small. And Shlomo Yehuda Rapport was considered Trev de la Trev in Poland, but was Trev de la Trev in Poland was considered pretty mainstream Orthodox in Prague. So it's funny. But anyway, uh, Rabbi Lehman, who went to university, said Rabbi Dr. Lehman uh, became a real frummy and one of the main guys of the frumkite in Germany. So, uh, when he, so and he married the daughter of the richest from Jew in Prague. And, I'm sorry, in Mainz. And so, basically, his father made dominion, so he became the rabbi there for the rest of his life. Now, he was a barhachi, but I'm saying that's how it happened. That's very common, the way it used to be in Germany. Maybe it's like that in America, too. In the yeshiva world, it's like that. Now, um, he was a young, energetic guy. Uh, one of the first things he realized is, you got to make your own children. I want you to understand, this is a religionsgesellschaft that they formed, the Orthodox. It's just like a club. And the state was willing to allow them to get together as a club to have services. He was not allowed to perform weddings. There, there was a lot of, I don't want to go into this, I mean, there's a lot of politics in one of these years. That's why Hirsch and these other people fought, you know, that they should be separate communities and have the same rights as the official rabbis and so forth, a lot of politics and all. It won't apply to our hero for a reason, as I'll, I'll try to explain. But here's a boy growing up, four, five, six years old, when he gets to be a, a young man, eight, nine, ten, something like that. His parents sent him to Mainz. Too, because this new young rabbi, Marcus Lehman, started a day school of some sort. I myself don't understand exactly how it worked, but obviously it was a day school in the sense of Limuni Kosh and Limuni Kol. There was like 50 boys all together, and he was one of them, and he shined and he excelled. You understand? Um, and uh, he was real from, he took him from uh, Marcus Lehman, and uh, now you're, that means you're there, he was born in 1849, so in the early 1860s, he's doing like that, you know what I'm saying? He's learning, uh, you know, in this uh, day school, which is unusual in Germany, okay? I just want to be clear. And um, let's put it this way. Uh, he takes to the learning, and eventually, when you graduate high school, so uh, goes to university. Well, wait a minute. Did Marcus Lehman have a school that he could graduate from high school and get admitted to university? It wasn't a gymnasium. So what he did was a lot, what a lot of from Jews did, 
which is um, he attended also gymnasium. Uh, I maybe went to night classes or something like that. I don't know. And a gymnasium is a real place where you have high school and mixed with college up to BA. And so here you have classic term Derek Harris, in which you're going, here's a teenager who's from, he's going to a real high school, the real college, with tests, examinations, and papers. You got to do all that stuff. And they're rigorous, it's 19th century, no fooling around. But he also sets off Kovetim Latour to learn with Marcus Lehman, Larry Bondi, the father in law. And so he makes his own curriculum. He's self driven. And then he goes to Berlin for grad school, for University of Berlin. This is in 1869. So notice he was 20 years old. And um, what happened in 1869? That's when Hildesheimer came a year earlier. So when he comes to Berlin to attend the university, and you have to understand, the University of Berlin is like Harvard. That's the number one university in Germany at that time. <laughs> 19th century, certainly. And... Um, he goes to the University of Berlin. He plows away at the grad school stuff, especially um, Plato and Aristotle, you know, because uh, this is what you're going to need to be a, a real doctor of philosophy, right? But meanwhile, Ralph Hildesheimer had moved to um, Berlin. He ran away from Hungary. In Hungary, he was considered unfrom, which was a lie. He came to Germany, to Berlin, he was from de la from. But on the other hand, term Derek Harris, he didn't, Ralph Hildesheimer did not set up the seminary officially till 1873. But from the day he showed up, he was giving shiurim. As he ran a personal shiva, because that's who he was. I talked about before. He was a guy who didn't feel comfortable if he's not giving two or three shiurim a day. And so our hero would be a classic case of a guy who moves to Berlin. He himself is going to university, but he's also taking the shiurim with Hildesheimer. So in other words, you have to juggle your schedules. And if you're self-driven, you can do it. You understand? The official framework of a seminary didn't exist at that time. You have to be uh, self-driven. That would be the equivalent of a guy today. Again, I'm making this up. Suppose the guy said this. I'm going to go to Harvard. But meanwhile, I'm going to organize my day in such a way that while I do all my classes in Harvard, which is a full schedule, uh, I'm also setting aside serious time for learning with so-and-so. Maybe a guy in the Hill House or one of these learning programs. And if you're serious, you can be Mamish Kovei and, 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 and learn about Velt. If you're serious and you're willing to be self, what's the right word, self-driven, you know, self-organized, it can happen. It's not for everybody. It requires a lot. But, you know, if you're if the real thing, you can do it. And so that's what happened. So then he spends his early years from 20 to 25, whatever, um, doing the German university system, and also learning with Alzheimer. Now, in the German university system, you take your courses in one place, you do your doctorate in another. It's funny, but that's how they used to do it. Um, honestly, so do it that way. 19th century, that's a classic way of doing it. And so he's in Berlin, but he does his doctoral dissertation in Strasbourg, which is over by the Rhine. And um, that's how you did it in those days. Now, he had an old digger. He had a famous uh, 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 committee for his dissertation. Okay. And then... Um, once he's got his doctorate, now he goes back to Hildesheimer. They say, I want to get smicha. Okay? And he learns up for him, and he gets the smicha next year. So notice this is an intense, self-driven curriculum. I'm just trying to show you the life was at that time. Self-driven curriculum. 
And by the time you finish the age of 27 or so, 26, 27, something like that, 28 maybe, uh, you got everything. You got your rabbi and your doctor. Okay? Rabbi doctor. Now, what did it mean to learn by Hildesheimer? They didn't spend time on Ketosachosh, I can tell you that right now. I'm serious. What they did was, he said, this is a rabbinical seminary. What does it take to be an Orthodox rabbi? You got an Orchim, and you're already a cold. Because you're going to be prosecuting these things all the time. You get what I'm saying? They weren't into the lumdus and all that kind of stuff. But they, but every rabbi has to know how to, how to build a mikvah, or how to run a mikvah, or has to write shilas. You got to know about Arabs. You know what I'm saying? You got to know your kashras, because you're going to be dealing in your community with kashras. I mean, shkija, trefus. You see what I'm saying? You have to know your cemetery stuff. Uh, you got to know your Taras Mishpacha stuff, because you're it. <laughs> you know? Anything involving Nita or anything like that whatsoever, it's you. So you see what, you get my point? Now, I, I don't think you have to know Chush and Mishpat so well. Uh, I don't think you have to know Evan Ezra so well. Except the basics. Simply because I don't think each one of these guys was Masad or Gittin. They probably sent them to somebody, but maybe I'm wrong. I'm simply trying to point out that the training was extremely halachla maizadik. Um Obviously, once you're a rabbi and become a position, you can learn up on your own. But to tell you the truth, somebody's a rabbi in Germany in the time I'm, peer, I'm talking about, in the 1870s, 80s, 90s, down to Hitler's time, doesn't have time. Because they, they're, they're throwing themselves in a huge area of activity. I'll explain that in a minute. I'll try to. Uh, in our case of our hero, he finished all of his studies in, in, by 1876 or so. So there he's 27 years old. He got a small cellar somewhere. But soon, within a year, he got a better post because of the government. Okay? Now, here we are. Prussia, Germany, in the 1870s. By the way, the Hirsch uh, Law was passed in 1876. The one that Hirsch was pushing for. That the Orthodox can separate and make their own community so you can perform a wedding, perform a divorce, and all the rest of it. And Hirsch immediately started the whole campaign of Austria and by Shishishid. Um So the, the years are, are interesting. Our hero comes up in the time of Sturm und Strang when the Orthodox are fighting the newspapers and places like that to uh, win their rights to a separate existence to reform or fighting against it. Interesting time to, to exist. Now, um, the first solo doesn't matter. Within a year, how should I put this? They just passed a law in 1876 that if you have a community, like Frankfurt, for example, in which there's X number of people and they're willing to go to court and sign a thing that in good conscience they can't be members of the Jewish community and they secede from the Jewish community and start something else called the Orthodox Jewish community, that was brand new. And I tell you right now, a lot of Jews weren't comfortable with it, including in Hirsch's own community. In Prussia and um, in other places, it's, um, let me just see something here. Hold on for a second. Yeah, I wanted to look at a map. I'm not even sure where, where, where he was. Where, where. What I'm trying to say is like this. Not everywhere did this law apply. For example, in Bavaria and Baden and some other places, it was against the law to form a separate community. Uh, 
If you were Orthodox and you don't like the fact that the community is reformed, tough luck, bud. The only thing you can do is make a minion. That's it. You know? It'll be, it won't be illegal, but it'll be unofficial, and it'll be discriminated against legally in many ways. That's the most you can do. Um, that happened in Bavaria and other places. The government in in Germany, especially in Prussia um, and in Hesse, has a big koach in who gets appointed the rabbi of the community. Hear what I said? That's interesting. Again, we're used to America, where it's a separation of church and state, and the community appoints whatever rabbi they want and fires them or hires them as they wish. The government doesn't interfere. This is not the case. In some places in Germany, it was like that. In many places, it was not. And in Germany, I'm trying to simplify something that's very complex. Uh, the government actually organized Jewish communities in many states uh, from the top down so that by government law, the five or ten communities in this and this place are legal uh, entities and uh, the government regulates who runs this and how they run it. And so what I'm trying to say is, uh, this is surprising. In a lot of places, especially smaller communities, when there's a, a position opens up for rabbi of the community, that's what we're talking about, not the rabbi of the show, the government can have the final say. Or at least if there's not a strong pushback from the community. And in those days, there wasn't. And so somehow or other, our hero, mainly I think because he had a PhD from the University of Strasbourg, and as I said before, he perfected himself as a German, um, got the green light for the government. He was elected by the government to be the chief rabbi in Fulda, where he remained for the rest of his life. Fold, as I said, is about 60 miles or so from uh, from uh, Frankfurt, but it's much the middle of Hess, one of the important communities. Let's put it this way, the Marm Schiff was in Fulda, you know what I mean? And mm, a small community, 500 people, something like that. At the time, he becomes the rabbi there. And it'll grow in the 19th century, you know, a few thousand, whatever. But he becomes the rabbi of this community because Prussia made him. Um, and you can be sure, you know, that it's not that he's a rabbi, but it's that he has a PhD. This is why they used to do it. It's also true that at that time, this is again surprising, in a state like Prussia, sometimes they might prefer an Orthodox candidate over a reform candidate, because the reform might be associated with left-wing liberal politics, and the Orthodox would not. And our hero perceived this, and built a whole career on this. Now, that means that for the rest of his life, he was a rov of a Kehillah and eventually of a whole district. In other words, 20 or 30 little towns and stuff in the Hess area. Right? Now, what does that mean on a day-to-day -day basis? There's a wonderful article in one of the Leo Young books I have in front of me that I want to read you that was written by some grandson or something like that of his quite a while ago, in which he's trying to explain to an English reader, English-speaking reader, uh, what it was like to be a rough in Germany. It's not like America. See, the position of rabbi has undergone all kind of changes throughout Jewish history. It depends when and where you're talking about. 
Um, you know, some people associate a rabbi with pastoral duties, speeches, things like that. Medech Gisa, there were plenty of times in Jewish history, a rov didn't do any pastoral duties. He didn't go visit the sick in the hospital. They have committees for that. The rabbi's job is sit and learn. And I said many times, you know, they fired the rabbi time of the grove of Vilna because they said, we went by your house 12 at night, 1 in the morning. The lights were not on. <laughs> what are we paying you to do? <laughs> you see? That's a different model. The modern Orthodox rabbinate, as we kind of understand it today, really dates from the Yekis in Germany. It's been modified in America to some degree. But I'm going to read this to you. So pay attention. Um, and it goes like this. It is difficult to imagine how it was possible for a single person to carry the load of responsibilities imposed upon an Orthodox rabbi in Germany in the late 19th century. To become the recognized spiritual as well as temporal leader of his community, the rabbi had to be fully versed in Jewish studies so he wouldn't be overshadowed by scholars in his own town, but also a university graduate with a doctor degree PhD. Since he had to be an experienced speaker, the preparation of sermons and lectures made considerable demands on his time. It wasn't like me, just shoot the bull. They had to prepare speeches. He had to manage, direct, and partly to conduct religious instruction, as well as to give shiurim in Gemara, Mishnah, and Halacha. And it means like Kisra, Kunar, and that sort of thing. The rabbi had also supervised the kashras and other ritual institutions, which at times had to be reconstituted and reorganized. So think about running an Arab and a mikvah. And the kashos. And giving classes. Right? Finally, it was he who had the paschal on questions members of communities. This is the old days, you know, when people brought the chicken shiloh to the rabbi all the time. If he was known as a Talmud Chacham, rabbis of other communities would write questions to him. And so you have to answer shilohs. In addition to everything else. To answer these problems, he frequently had to undertake a thorough study of the case involved. In those times, there existed no well-organized social welfare service, except in a few major communities. And so the rabbi, therefore, was the, as we would say today, the tzedakah center, the chesed center, you know, the unemployment center, you know what I mean, central welfare, the central welfare agency, to which one can, can, could turn confidentially in case of need. Although all communities had tzedakah associations and funds, these were linked to special purposes and consider themselves bound by obsolete statues. So it'd be some old clothes or something. But here the rabbi needs, you know, money for this and this need right now. Thus the rabbi had to take matters into his own hands and raise the money. He likewise had received appeals from institutions outside his community, in Germany and abroad, especially from yeshivas in Eastern Europe and Eretz Israel, to solicit donations in a special circumstance to organize fundraising drives. If in addition to his own seat of office, notice, if, if you were not only a rabbi of your own specific little town, he was a district rabbiner, let's say, say, in charge of other communities outside the town, as was the case in Bavaria, Baden, Hesse, and Hanover, and other provinces, where the government had established an organization of Jewish communities, then the rabbi was called upon at regular intervals to visit the communities in his administrative range, to maintain constant contact with their heads and teachers, to inspect Chinuch um, and Shochtim everywhere, and to carry out on their behalf the same duties as he had in his own community. 
Most frequently, the rabbi had to act as spokesman for his community and district with the authorities. So then you had to be, like we say today, the asking, you know, deal with the, like the good guy, you know, to deal with the government issues, um, either alone or with the president of the community. The very ubiquity of the rabbis was a time a source of criticism that had prevented from devoting more time to the study of the Torah. So you see, it was a major job. You know, something that today is divided up in many different people. He was the Vadakashas, he was the Erev, he was the Mikvah, he was the Chinuch, he was, you, know, you see what I'm saying, right? You know, plus you have to give the speeches and go to the hospital and the bar mitzvahs and the funerals and this and that and the other. It's quite a job. Our hero became the Rav in Fulda for 40 years, right? 41 years. And um, he excelled. Uh, he was not that far away from Frankfurt. This is in the last decade of the life of Sanskrit of Hirsch. He met frequently with Hirsch. I think, by the way, that one of the reasons he got the job was because the, the former president of Hirsch's synagogue was Rothschild. One of the Rothschilds was from, the others were not. But this was the one I'm talking about, Wilhelm Rothschild, who was an interesting character on his own. Maybe sometime we'll talk about him. And um, he was a Fermi. And and he was loaded, of course. And um, he used to use, pull strings from behind the scenes that if a community, a, a Stella was open, and it could be a reformer, Orthodox guy, he would try to stop an Orthodox guy. If you can find the right guy. In my opinion, I think that's how this guy got the job. Because he's only in his 20s, right? He's only in his 20s. Um, but it worked out very well. Now, um, he, Rabbi Dr. Khan, therefore, uh, became the rub there, and he excelled in it. That's the reason I'm talking about him. He became a very famous person in which he's not machadish anything, but he lived the term Jericho's system. Uh, this was a case in which there's only one Kehillah. This is unusual in Germany. There's not a reform in Orthodox. There's just a, an Orthodox rope. So even though the community's not small, although it grew in his time, as I mentioned before with the Ksav Sofer, this requires somebody who, who knows how to hold them and fold them and try to maintain standards in your community, even though you're dealing with a number of Balabats who are not from or reform or this, that, and the other, but you're the rope. And what he became famous for was being very active and very careful, and he dominated the community. And he made it that, you know, there was nothing unfrom going on in that community, whether the people liked it or not. And uh, I think that that's a, a very interesting phenomenon. You didn't have that too often in Germany, where the Rav and the Kill was there for from. Uh, and, and thanks to the strong personality, because he had a strong personality, but he was also tremendously toxic. This is a guy who worked 24-7, right? He didn't mind doing it. So just think, for example, um, you know, to run all the activities I just described, not only in your own town, but, you know, in all the small communities elsewhere, just to handle the kashas and the shokhtam and all the rest of it, you can just imagine the number of shalots that are involved over there. And um, he was, as I say before, the type of person who was very diligent, and um, just to give you one example, uh, you had a problem with the film at that time, you know, Saver Tursen film. Uh, you always do. 
we have it today also. And everybody wants to know, you know, where do you have gurus? He he made a study of this and he set up a system in which, you know, with the surfers and all the rest of it, and he had special contacts in Galicia and whatever. And he made his business that the that that in his town they produced the best film. Uh remember they used to say, even in Europe, Eastern Europe, you'd be surprised they would get the film from Fulda. You know, so I was like weird. You understand? Because it's Yekish. You understand? It's run on a system and it's run Kadasa Kadin. And, you know, when you need kosher things, that's where you're going to go. You can just imagine how you organize the mikvah. Now, all this costs money. Then I would say the following. When I said he's a Hershian, one of the most important um, achievements of Sanson Rifle Hirsch was in consciousness raising. It's something that you and I take for granted today. Most of you are listening to this. And that is, you consider yourself from Jews. And that's a very distinct and sharp identity. And you view reality through that lens. Um, and so, your politics, your culture, you view through a certain lens. You don't simply say, I'm a Jew, for example, living in Baltimore. It's, I'm an Orthodox Jew living in the Orthodox community in Baltimore. You understand? Uh, well aware that there are others not like you. You have a very strong, prejudiced, and sharp um, uh, uh, point of view on everything. Um, you would not, for a second, tolerate that some non-from person should get up and tell the city of Baltimore, the state of Maryland, this is what the Jewish religion holds on the gays or something like that. You say, that's what you hold. That's not what we hold. You see what I'm saying? You're not really Jewish. Now, you're halakhically Jewish, but you don't represent the, the very strong uh, uh, um, self-identity um, confident, too, that there's a very distinct hashkafa, the key element of the consciousness raising, which hasn't always existed. It start, kind of starts in the West with Samson Rebekah Hirsch, and, uh, and our hero was one of the main chassidim of that, because wherever he went, in Fulda and elsewhere, he said, you know, we're sending up an orthodox school over here, not just a Jewish school. We're sending up an Orthodox system of kashas, not just a Jewish system of kashas. We're, we're sending an Orthodox kind of newspaper, not just a Jewish newspaper. And um, the regular Jewish, German Jewish community wasn't so crazy about this. And um, a lot of times they tried to put stuff in his way. But he was very brilliant at hooking up with the right guy, shall we say. Uh, first of all, Fold is a Catholic area. Um, here you have something very interesting in terms of the history of German Jewry in the imperial era, in the Kaiser's era. Bismarck, when he founded the German Empire, for his own cynical reasons, declared one the Catholic religion. It's called the Kulturkampf. For certain reasons, I won't go into. And for a while, in the 1870s, the Catholics were actually persecuted in Germany. Now, a lot of Jewish liberals were in favor of this, which made the Catholics hate them. Um... This is a whole discussion by itself. The Orthodox, especially somebody like our hero, said, don't, what are you signing with Bismarck against the Catholic? We live with the Catholics. And anyway, what do we gain anti-Catholic? What do you gain from that? We want to keep our religion. They want to keep their religion. What's your problem? And so he made his, his point to buddy up with the Catholics, especially the Archbishop, who became a famous uh, churchman, uh, a cop. And uh, they were buddy buddies. And helped each other. And in general, because of what I just described, 
the Catholic Church, which is not liberal in most places, became liberal in Germany because they had to argue in favor of their rights. And so the argument against Bismarck is you shouldn't discriminate against on religious basis. You know, see, in another country, the Catholics would say we should religion discriminate. But the specific, specific circumstances in Germany were that the Catholic um, religion organized itself politically, and it's called the Center Party, Centrum, the Center Party, which is an important party. This is the inspiration for the Dati parties in Israel, the, the Mizrahi and the others. Because what they did was they said, you know, we're, we're interested in protecting Catholic rights, Catholic issues. That's like the Mizrahi, you know, we want to protect from rights, from issues in the context of the state. So our hero became really tight, made his business become really tight with them. First of all, Fulda and the Hesse is, is a Catholic area. And uh, this helped get rid of anti-Semitism where he lived. And I can tell you right now, um, in 1882, this is famous. It was a blood libel case. That's right, as late as 18, in, in the late 1800s, and um, in Hungary, Tisa Eslar case. And, um, you know, all. The, and I might also point out this one, the anti-Semitic movement as an official movement started in Germany in the 1870s, 80s. They had a party which won seats in Hesse called the Anti-Semitic Party. That's the name of the party in Parliament. People don't know this. And uh, our hero was able to get the Archbishop, who later became a Cardinal, to publish a whole big pub letter, which for the Catholics matters if the Archbishop does it, which said that uh, these things they're saying about the dudes, it was an Alila's thumb, it's a blood libel case. They said a kid, a guy in, in Hungary somewhere murdered a girl to use the blood for matzo. And Tisa Eslar. You can look up, it's, it's a famous case. Tisa, T-I-S-Z-A, it's Hungarian. Um, it was tried in courts. And he got the bishop, the most important Catholic guy in Germany, to issue a public letter which said, this is bogus. You know, listen, we don't necessarily like the Jews. We don't believe in the Jewish religion. But they don't do the blood libel. <laughs> you know, that part's not true. And here he was doing something that Jews have done for a thousand years. Ever since the rise of the blood libel in the Middle Ages, in the 1100s, I guess, 1200s, whoever Jews were faced with this problem, you know what they did? They went to the Pope. It sounds funny. Because the Catholic Church, at the end of the day, although they were never sure, they always made investigations and issued public statements in the 1200s, in the 1500s, the 1700s, by Popes, which said this is just not true. Again, the Jews are bad, they're scum of the earth, they're bad news, they killed Jesus, hundred different things. The Jews are bad, bad, bad. However, with, with regards to the question of whether they do the Alil Islam, that they do not do. And um, it's important to have a friend like that. Right? Now, by the way, they were good friends. He made his business, they should be good friends. And um, therefore, many times later, he was able to get the votes of the Catholic Party, which had a lot of votes. For from issues. You get it? That's what a smart guy he was. Um, I remember uh, Shkita was always under attack um, from the SPCA and from various groups. Shkita is under attack. And this was just an issue that the firm had to deal with. And I can tell you right now, the reform didn't even give a darn because they don't keep kosher anyway. So you say, you have to stun the animal before you shout it. It's a big deal. So, 
a safety measure. Only the from cared. Now, that was tough. So you're not going to win vote. I mean, how are you going to prevent it? You have to lobby. And our hero became, in my opinion, the most effective lobbyist in the 1880s, 90s, the first decade of the um, 20th century. Those were his peak years with the German government and the German parties in the parliament. So that means he's, in addition to all the jobs that I just described, you have to run the Mikvah, you have to run the Kahila, you have to run the Davening, give the speeches, give the Shiram, run the Kashras, and all the other things. He also became, I think, the number one Askin, the number one lobbyist with the Prussian government, with the German government. And he became an expert at this. And I just showed you, he was a smart cookie. If you get the Catholics on your side, then when the it, when they ever came up a question of a vote for a for a shrita, he could go to the parliament in Berlin and talk to the Catholic guys. And they're like, listen, you don't want something as a discriminating against religion because you don't know where to end up. Might end up with the Catholics. You know, so today they do the Orthodox Jews. Tomorrow they'll screw the Catholics. That's an argument that works. With other guys, it would go like this: Listen, you're from Catholic. As such, you should respect the fact that I'm a front Jew. And they did. You get it? It's a very complicated subject. It's a fascinating subject. And I remember Breuer deals with it in his book. What was the exact nature of the anti-Semitism in Imperial Germany? Because there's a lot of anti-Semitism, but don't make the mistake of saying an anti-Semit is a Hitler. That's the trouble we have now with politics in America today. Anybody like this is immediately classified like this. And anybody like that is immediately classified like that. There's a lot of gray area in the middle. Right, and these Orthodox spokesmen, especially like Rabbi Khan and others, they'd be the first ones to say, "Someone can hate the Jews at one level, but be prepared to help them on another level if they're approached in a certain way for certain reasons." So you don't give up on anybody, and you you know knock on all the doors, and if you approach it with the right arguments or the right this and the other, you'd be surprised at what you end up with. And he was very successful in this, and so whenever there was a question of speaking a different uh, Medina or something like that in Germany, all these different cities. He was one of the main um, activists. Okay, trains everywhere in Dover and talk and lobby with the government people. And I remember, he's a doctor, he's a PhD. He knows German, he knows Plato, he knows Aristotle. See, he used all the Shem Shemayim. It's a classic case of the term Dechert. Right? Classic case. And um, he was pretty darn effective. Now, there was a famous scandal then one of the German states in the Kingdom of Saxony, they did pass a law, a ban in the Shrita, in the late 1880s, followed by Switzerland in the 1890s. Switzerland still has that law till today, okay? Um, they have to get their meat from elsewhere, uh, which which is just interesting. But Switzerland is not part of the German Empire. The from activists went crazy over the Saxony case because this could spread. And what they did... Now I want to show you what, what a smart cookie was. Imagine Saxony is like a state. And imagine Berlin is like the federal, like Washington, D.C. So he went to the federal, to what to Berlin, and he talked to the Catholic guys. And he also talked to Bismarck's son. The governor of his district in Hesse was the son of Prince Bismarck, Count Wilhelm Bismarck. They made business become buddy to him. Um, these are strong, conservative Prussians. But basically, his case was like this. The Orthodox Jews are the are the conservative Jews, the politically conservative Jews. So why are you persecuting us? We're actually like on your side. 
You know? And they respected it because a lot of the anti-Semitism had to do with and expressed itself in social terms. Notice, I don't want a Jew living next door to me. I don't want a Jew in my club. You know what I'm saying? I don't like the Jews in, being in my restaurant, um, in, my, in, in my association. I don't have nothing to do with them. Now, a liberal Jew will say, and he's legally correct, you can't discriminate. There are laws in Germany that work against discrimination. The Jews that have complete and total civil rights with everybody else can't keep any battles from anywhere else. This was true. But you won the battle, lost the war. Because, yeah, you can force yourself into the club or something. Now everybody hates you, hates the Jews. You see? Now, with the Orthodox, by definition, they didn't want to join no club. <laughs> they want to keep to themselves. They're, they're only interested in freedom of religion, practice their own religion. They don't care about, uh, you know, uh, being admitted to this society or that sort of thing, whatever. The opposite, you know, the Judaism has plenty of laws themselves, like uh, Stam Yenum, uh, uh, precisely to enforce social segregation. So he can make a claim with these hard right-wing anti-Semitic Germans. It's actually, you should help us not ban the Shkita because continuing Orthodox Judaism is actually good for you. And it worked. So he got the Imperial Parliament, the Reichstag, to um, pass the law in first reading, that was to start to issue a law, which will, will be a federal law, which will cancel all the state laws. And the federal law will say, you can't ban Shkita. Isn't that interesting? Saddam Mela killed the state law. But that would get Saxony angry because they passed a state law. But then he lobbied with the state government in Saxony, with the royal government in Saxony. He said, listen, they're going to pass this law anyway. Um, it'll be bad if they override your law. Why don't you just cancel the law and then I'll arrange that they won't even pass the federal law. And everybody will save face and feel good. And that's what happened. See, do you get what I'm saying? He knew how to, how, to, how to play the political game very well for the case of Yiddishkeit. And so the result was the Shkita was never in. It was two people. It was uh, Dr. Kahn and Hildesheimer's son, Hirsch Hildesheimer. They were the ones that were fighting all the time, um, you know, to protect Jewish interests. And this and a hundred other issues. So um, I would say Kahn became the most effective of the loyalists, of the uh, lobbyists. They were renowned for that. They say he's like Hildesheimer. He always had a suitcase ready because at the drop of a hat, you drop everything, get on a train and go to Berlin or go somewhere else to deal with a political situation. He really was like that. He had a fully packed, you know, suitcase with all the stuff necessary, including, you know, two chalas and wine for Shabbos, just like Hildesheimer, plus clothes, change of clothes, a separate pair of filler and talus, you know, to hit the road. And uh, therefore, you have to be very energetic to do that. Now, it goes several ways. I remember Breuer has a wonderful story in the footnotes that um, our hero dominated his local community by the force of personality and the fact he was on top of everybody. So nobody, I didn't say they're all from, but nobody's opening a store in Chavez. You get it? Nobody's opening a store in Chavez. Um, and he'll even get the bishop to say, the Catholic Church believes that Jewish doors should not be open in Chavez. He did that. You understand? The Christians should keep the Christian rules, the Jews should keep the German rules, the, the, the Jewish rules. That's very German, of a certain sort. Um, you have to understand 
This is part of the German mentality of the 19th century. And if you know how to take advantage of it, you could use it for the right purposes. And I would say he was the number one expert in doing that. The number one, that's quite a statement I made. I think he was the number one expert in doing that. Um, I'm reminded of a story, uh, Monica Rickards is a famous German professor, a lady, and she has a wonderful book of memoirs. It's in German, of German Jews. It's a very fine, very well-known in the academic world. And uh, they're in her own good, the uh, memoirs. And I remember she had somebody from um, Eastern Germany, from Silesia, Schlesen, uh, where the parents had like a store in a mining town, you know, coal miners and something like that. And, uh, you know, rough element. It's all Catholic. And his father, from Guy, um, had a grocery store. And something was stolen from the store. Let's say a becher. No, no. Like silverware stuff. It was stolen from the house. And, you know, nobody knew who did it. And he went and complained to the Catholic priest of the town. He said, somebody stole my stuff. And I don't know what else. It was obviously one of your people. And the Catholic, now, this is in a non from book. The Catholic priest made a sermon on Sunday. They said like this. I'm not Jewish. not in favor of Judaism. But we have these Jews over here. And there's this guy so-and-so with the grocery store. And I want to tell you something. He follows his religion. I admire that. When I'm up in the morning, he's already gone early to show. You know, in other words, you know, 6 o'clock in the morning, he's already... I see him going to show. When I pass his house on Friday night, he's singing the religious songs. That's what he said. So he's doing the right thing according to the way he understands it. He's a religious person. I respect that. So I don't want to know who stole this, but I want it put back. Now I can ask you questions, but I don't want it put back. And it was. You know, they, they came, they opened the door, the front door, and there it was. So this is a, a certain uh, way of thinking, which, as I said before, if you know how to use it, you could use, you know, he'd do it. And he was an expert in this. It's very famous. He went to see uh, Bismarck, the son, not the father, not Prince Bismarck, the son. And um, he was waiting for his appointment in the Hall of the Ministry of Interior. This is a German empire, you know. And it was getting late for Mincha. He got up without Mincha. It's a very famous story. Legendary story. And they respected that. Now, he didn't stand in the middle like, you know, you make a chil Hashem in the middle of the airplane and block the waiters and all that. I'm sure he stood on the side of the room. And, you know, down Mincha, people could just say, he's Orthodox too. See, he keeps, you know, you got to give him respect. You see? See, he knew how to leverage this rather brilliantly, in my opinion. Um, so he was the right guy at the right time and he, and he understood the game exactly. Especially the Prussians and the Catholics. These are the big groups in Germany. If you know their mentality, you can get things done. This is called Stadlonis. People could make fun of this. They say it's old-fashioned. You should insist on your rights. He said, no, no, no. That's the right way to go. You set an agenda. You want to protect the Shechita. You want to protect the Kashish. You want to protect the uh, Chinuch. He got the government to help on Chinuch issues, believe it or not. And uh, because the reform wanted that the, the day school should be part of a reform framework. And so he was able to get the government to back his position. Uh this is just very, uh, you know, interesting. And let me stop for a second. Yeah, I had to change that. Um, I was talking about the fact that he was an effective lobbyist. And the German government, I mean, again, the anti-Semitic authorities trusted him. They liked him. And they favored him. 
He was able to leverage that on many occasions in very funny ways. I'll give you an example. I'll give many examples. In the First World War, the Germans uh, beat the Russian army. There were a lot of Russian POWs in German prison camps and throughout Germany. Tons of Russian prisoners, including a lot of Jews. Near Fulda also. He went He went to the German army. He basically said like this. Uh, I will guarantee, let these guys off for Yom Narum is for Sukkot, or my guarantee, they'll come back to the jail. And they did. And so yeah, the, the town was <laughs> full of Jewish POWs. Imagine the Yakishan killer they have to set up, you know, um, what's the right word? Achila Shtia You know, you have to set up accommodation for all these guys, Eastern European Jews, all the rest of them, who probably wonder what the heck just happened over here. They're taken out of the camp. They will go for Rosh Hashanah because he knew the army very well. The army knew him. How does he know the army? Well, for 40 years, he's been dealing with the army. Anytime something came up that had to do with soldiers who were Orthodox, with Kashras, with um, Shabbos, that means you have to know the regulations and you have to know when you're able to ask for a soldier to get off of Shabbos and when not. And like I said before, the trick over here, as far as I see, is not to take advantage of it. If they think they're playing, you're playing them, you lost it right away. You have to be completely honest, super honest, and transparent at all times, and don't respect that. You understand? And um, what do you call it? It, it, was, it, was, it was just interesting. Now, um, he was able to... I mean, I can't overemphasize that. I mean, you know, if, if it looks like you're you're playing a shtick, it's not going to be good. It'll be found out. If you're, say, you know, if you're just a very straightforward, in the best Yekisha style, um, then, then you'll get respect. They'll either say yes or they'll say no. But at least they'll respect what you're doing. Um, I think I told you once, he's the guy who, uh, this is just funny, he is the guy who, when he got smicha from Hilzheimer, Ralph Hilzheimer in 1876, that means he was 27 years old, he just finished a PhD in university. I mean, a serious PhD. And on the other hand, he, he certainly passed the Bechinas and all the rest of it. And... Um, <laughs> time came to give him the smicha, and he's one of the best guys. And he said to Hilzheimer, he said, you can't... <laughs> it's a funny story. He says, actually, you can't give me smicha. Why not? He passed all the bikinis. You know, after learning what I learned in college, I cannot honestly say that, I, that I'm convinced that the Megill Sester has written Baruch HaKodesh at the time it says and all the rest of it. Um... Now, somebody else would just shut up and don't even talk about it. A yekka is a yekka. You know what I'm saying? And he's saying to, the, <laughs> after spending so and so many years studying for smicha, he's saying, you know, I, I can't, what's the right word? I can't cr- uh, check every checkbox. I believe in 99.9% of the Torah, Megillah Sester, the historicity of it, I don't know if I believe that. You know? <laughs> and Hildesheimer was a genius of Chinuchis, I know you better than you know you, and you will believe it. I'm going to give you smicha now anyway. A story like this is unbelievable. So I'm just saying, this is his character, Bivir Yashas. 
very straightforward. And um, similarly, um, there was a famous case. He was the son-in-law of the rabbi of the Rav of uh, Hamburg. His wife actually was uh, the granddaughter of the chief rabbi of England, Nathan Marcus Adler. And they married into those families. And in Hamburg, if you know, there's no reason you should know this. There used to be big fights over cemeteries. Remember I mentioned the other day that Nota Yehuda in, uh, in Peites having to do with a cemetery in Prague, actually, where it, it's leased, so it's going to run out, and then the people who own it are going to kick the graves out. Um, that's always been a problem with cemeteries. You should try to own it, but what happens if the only thing you can do is, is rent it, lease it, even for 50 years, 100 years? It was all big child over there in the Nota Yehuda. So you had that problem in, in Hamburg, in Altona Hamburg Vonspeg, where the cemetery was only leased. And um, the Kehillah, the best they could come up with was that kind of arrangement. And the Rav uh, Stern, who was a Talmud Chacham, he said, no, we can't do this. We have to have a place that we own so nobody can ever kick the graves out. And the problem is, the board is over there, the administrative board is run, without boring you with the details, the Hamburg part, the Prussia part, the only place you get the cemetery was in the Prussia part. And according to the Prussian laws and the Prussian authorities, they're not going to lease it. They're not going to sell it for the Jews because of this regulation, that regulation. Our hero, and by the way, the, the rabbi in Hamburg therefore was overruled by his own board and by the German government. He was very frustrated. But his son-in-law, who's our hero, he went to Bismarck's son, and uh, he said, I need this as a personal favor. <laughs> as Bismarck's son went to the father, the famous Otto von Bismarck himself, the big boss in Germany, and Bismarck overruled the Prussian government near Hamburg and said, the heck with this, just give the Jews a damn cemetery <laughs> and leave it alone. That's an incredible story. I mean, he, now, Bismarck didn't like the Jews, either the father or the son. But you see, if you know how to approach them a certain time a certain place, it could work. It's very interesting, right? I think it's interesting, anyway. Um, there are many of these issues, one after the other after the other. One of the issues you dealt with at that time had to do with Briss Meal and the Mitsiso. Now, by the way, i got to tell you a funny story. Again, in this Monica Ricard's book, one of that German lady, she's not Jewish. I can't remember who it is. I read, read this many years ago. These are German memoirs. And some guy grew up in Fulda. Not from. I mean, in his adult years, he wasn't, but he grew up in Fulda when the community was Orthodox. And they had a situation like I just read in the Yeshiva World the other day. I'm sure you saw this. They found this guy, he turned out to be a missionary, what, in the French Hill or something like that, you know, in Mayasharm, right? This guy that was masquerading as a from guy. Turned out he was a missionary. And he was a, apparently a moil or something. I just looked at the headlines on the Yeshiva World. And the question is, now what do you do with all the people he did a bris to? Do they have to a toughest on bridge or something like that or not? Same thing happened. As soon as I saw it, I thought of Khan. Matter of fact, that's probably what got me to do this uh, bio today. And uh, this guy writes, there was some problem. I can't remember what it was. There was some defect in all the brisson that was done. And he got the bishop like to issue an order or something like that. Did all the Jews have to go and get a tougher, you know what I mean? And this guy went there and he said, I don't want to do this. And I don't remember the end of the story because the rabbi said, you got to do this. I don't know who won. And I'm just trying to tell you, he was a stark guy in his day. Yeah, you know, he had a kayak. Uh, you can't force somebody, but you can put a lot of pressure on them. 
Um, he ran his he ran his kill pretty strongly. Now, one of the most important tools to be able to run a kill strongly is you have to be an independent fundraiser. Get it? Because if you depend on the local community raising the money, that's when they got you. But if I don't need you, I can get the money somewhere else, and I got you. Then the rabbi has you. That's a classic case of the rabbi in the modern era. Just think of the Punavish Rav, for example. Uh, and so our hero, you can imagine the type of guy I'm talking about, he was an indefatigable fundraiser. And let's put it this way. If he said the mikvah in our town is not good enough, I need a better mikvah, both halachically and aesthetically. And the community said, as they did, it's good enough because they don't want to cough up money. He went around to Rothschild and this guy and that guy and the other guy. He did. And he said, listen, I'm raising money for the mikvah over here. And this is the reason. And he, he could persuade him. And if he comes back to town with, I would say today, fifty, hundred thousand, dollars whatever the amount of money is, I tell you, I'll jump in a lake. I'll get the mikvah about myself. Uh, same thing if you want to fix the cemetery. Same thing if you want to fix the synagogue, make it more kosher. You know, anything like that. Uh, same thing if you want to fix the kashras. Uh, he was like a Star K type person, uh, as I see it, because uh, he wrote all these. He's an early writer on Kashi's issues, you know, like uh, the Star K and the other uh, Kashi's place put out, you know, notices about new foods. At that time in Germany, the big problem was industrial butter, by the way. He wrote a whole book on industrial butter because people thought butter was okay. And he found out that they're actually, um, what's the right word? They are. Um, you know, mixing animal fats into butter. And, uh, you know, we're dealing over here not with from Jews in the sense of yeshiva-educated, Beisiakov-educated, you know, modern. You're dealing with Jews in the 19th century. They just knew what their parents did. And even the Orthodox Jews, they didn't have the halachic sensibilities with the texts that you and I have been accustomed to because we've grown up in a completely um, different environment. You understand? A completely different environment. Uh, they knew what the parents did. Uh, and this is Germany in the 19th century. Everything's very middle-class bourgeois. Um, people do what they do. And you, you, you're you supposed to try, as a rabbi, persuade them to upgrade their halakha observance. Some things are successful, some things are not successful. But it's important to understand this. So when it came to kashas, you know, people thought, what's wrong with the butter? We've been using it forever. And he said, well, no, recently it started using animal fat. You know, that's an example of a modern term derech rabbi trying to upgrade using modern science, you know, uh, how to do it. Uh, it's it's very interesting. Listen, you know, we have all these jokes. This might lead to mixed dancing. In Germany, mixed dancing was, was very common. I'm talking about the from circles. There were those who didn't. And then he did. I, I saw once a thing from the 19th century, it's Achnasa Sefer Torah. It's all in German. There's a certain place. They're bringing the Torah in. They're going to have the uh, ceremony, the prayers, followed by Seuda, right? Followed by Seuda. And then uh, and then after that, they'll have mixed dancing. They'll have dancing. Uh, in America today, you say, Achnasa Sefer Torah is mixed dancing. You have to understand, it's a different time and place, right? He had to operate in a different time and place. So one of the, I was talking about Bris Mila before, one of the problems he had at that time was Mitzitzah Bepeh. Uh, that's something that's always been a problem. It's still a problem today. Um, it could be a health hazard. Um, there are, you know, there are arguments back and forth. 
Uh, two of my kids had seats in bed, one of them didn't. Uh, and 19th century, you know, um, this is a big, uh, what's the right word, wedge issue for the reform and the non-reform, because they claimed anyway that some kids got sick from the Matisse of I don't know if it's true. I mean, I studied it once. It's it's not clear exactly the sources, but, you know, possibly, uh, you know, because the mole has a herpes or something like that. <laughs> Excuse me. Excuse me. And um, what do you do about it? Now, you can simply say the heck with them. But if you say the heck with the non-from, you lose a big chalik. If you're a rabbi in Germany, you have to be exquisitely sensitive to the fact if you push too far at the wrong time in the wrong place, if you don't know when to hold them for them, you lose them. Again, again, I'm thinking of the uh, Breuer book. I remember again, he had a footnote by Merzbach, Yonah Merzbach, who's the one who started the um, Kol Torah, Yeshiva in Yerushalayim, was a Hildesheimer rabbi, graduate, I guess in the 20s. And uh, his first stellar, from Guy, it was in Germany, a small community. And he went, He it was a candidate, and he went there on Shabbos to deliver a uh, you know trial sermon and so forth. And this Orthodox community, okay? And um, he didn't want to wear the gown. You understand? Germany, you have to wear, you know, like a galach. A, a, a hat like a chazan wears. And a whole robe. And the whole gun's of business. That's what the public wants. Um, and being a frummy, relative to Germany in the 1920s, he looked at that as a kosher shtick. You know? What do you need that for? And he wanted to show them he can, he can give a good sermon without it. And so, even though he knew that they liked that, he tried to do, like we see, a from shtick. And he came there, I think he wore Beretta, but not the uh, not the robe. And you know something? The ne- they were so outraged, the next day the whole community had a meeting, and they said, because the Orthodox dared to send somebody who was dressed in such a horrible way, notice he didn't dress in the right way with the robe, they are now declaring themselves a reformed community. They're abandoning Orthodoxy and becoming reformed, and that's what happened. And he's all like, whoa, this is his first lesson in the practical rabbinate. Because of some stupid stupidity, which he meant well, he lost it. He lost all Kehillah. So I'm just trying to tell you, you have to have a sensitivity. You know, when you deal with these things, you can't go and say, whoa, that's stupid. Or, yeah, okay, it's stupid. But that's where the people are holding. You know what I'm saying? That's the people holding. So when it comes to Bris Mila in the 19th century, the, the issue of Mitzitzit was a very big one. And already Sam Sofer, although he wasn't happy about it, gave a heter um, in Vienna to use some kind of a tube. Um, but our hero is the guy who came up with the tube that is used today. Because he wanted to find something that was maximum hygienic, but fulfilled the halachic requirements. It's a very yekish approach, in which he used technology to try to bridge the gap between the traditional practice and halachic requirements. Uh, that's why the Germans are the ones who started with the machine matzo, for example, right? And Eastern Europe, they say, oh, machine matzo is terrible. Germans say, listen, um, it's actually more kosher. They can control it better using modern science and technology. I know the arguments back and forth, but you get what I'm saying. So he was a perfect example of that kind of approach, right? And um, he 
worked for years with uh, with uh, medical experts to try to come up with the right technology, which ended up being this kind of tube that we use today. And he's the one who created it. And I remember after he worked with a guy who was a, a medical guy, a professor in Munich. And after he they worked it out, the two of them together, um, the guy was a guy. He went to Germany, to Berlin, to the number one MDs, Virchow. I don't know if you heard of uh, Rudolf Virchow. He was the number one MD of the 19th century, period. Uh, a German liberal, by the way, who was a, an enemy of anti-Semitism. Very interesting guy. They went to Bergmann. He went to all the big MD names, the, the, the fathers of German science in the 1880s, 1890s, and they signed off on it. And you have to understand, they had unbelievable prestige because they were the number one medical people in the world. I say, I repeat again, in the world. In the world. And they said, this Mesita tube, whatever he came up with, does totally satisfy the hygiene requirements, all the rest of it, 100% safe. That was tremendous kid Hashem. And that persuaded a ton of people who otherwise wouldn't do a bris. And you can't say, well, who cares what they do? If you say, who cares what they say, all you're doing is making it that they won't do a bris. That's all. They won't do it. So, it's a perfect example of this kind of approach. You know, I remember in the 1930s when Hitler came to power, the first thing that Hitler put into place was anti-Shita law, meaning you have to stun the animals. This is Yechiel Yaka Weinberg. I spoke about it. And back and forth, what do you do about this? Because that means the German Jews can't have any meat. And, you know, there's a whole big tarom with lots of opinions back and forth. I remember the German rabbis, who didn't have the final say, they immediately started working on some kind of technical solution, if possible. I don't remember exactly what it was. Maybe in the instant that you shecht it, you stun it, something like that. Um, and trying to immediately work out, as I said before, to bridge the gap between the, the halakha requirements and technological necessities. Uh, now, Rokhan Reiser killed it for policy reasons. As I said before, I'm sure I spoke about that when I did the three days. That's a whole parsha by itself. But this approach is a very much a modern one. Um, you see in America, like with the kosher's agencies and things like this, we're trying to find, you know, the Shabbos clocks, the Shabbos, um, what I'm talking about, stoves and all the rest of it. You're trying to find, if possible, a technological answer or solution um, to the problems uh, that we have faced, you know, with the, with the challenges of, of modern life. Now, there's always going to be people who afford it and against it. Right? There will always be people for and against it. Okay. Okay. But he represented a case. Let me put it this way. When he came out with this tube and he got all these big shots to do it, that was a big plus, the big Kiddushem. And if I remember correctly, I remember the Jacob Katz article on it, when he has a whole article in the history of the Mitzitzah Bepat controversy, I believe he said, Rechaim Brisker and Mr. Rechaim Inspector used these. I think. Um... So that, again, is an example of what I'm talking about, right? Now, um, in the wider sense, um, oh, by the way, <laughs> uh, so I was talking before about dancing and things like that. He tried, Daddy couldn't stop. Uh, <laughs> he used to go over and every year, call the little community to say, no mixed dancing, although they didn't listen, you know. Because <laughs> you can't convince them. That's Okay. When you're dealing with Balabatim, especially in that era, you just have to understand the mentality. Um, I remember there was some rabbi who um, 
said to, there was a certain place in Germany where they stopped covering their hair. And he said to the lady, you're supposed to cover the hair. Well, and you're a firm person. She was a firm person. And she said, that's old-fashioned. It's not really a din. Because we see nowadays, like, you shake hands with women. And they never used to do that before. And he tried to explain the difference, you know, to shake hands with women is different than, than covering your hair. There's a shock and you're a day all the way. That don't mean nothing to these people. See, you, you, you understand? Pure halachic reasoning is part of the solution. <laughs> Social policy and wisdom is a major component of how you approach this if you have common sense. And he and our hero certainly had common sense. Uh, and so um, I would point out that uh, the fact that he was able to raise all this money on his own <laughs> was a big help. I want to tell that story before. He went on a vacation. It's in the Breuer book somewhere. Uh, in some footnote somewhere. He went on a vacation, you know, to Atlantic City, to Holland, Shevingen, which was in Holland. That's where he used to go for the beach. And, you know, he's away for a week or 10 days. Tunes is away. The cats will play. And, uh, you know, he's not coming back for a week or 10 days. And uh, so a guy opened the store in Chavez. Make a fait accompli. <laughs> Somebody immediately sent him a telegram. The minute Shabbos was over, somebody opened the store in Shabbos. <laughs> he got on the train midnight. <laughs> he canceled the, the vacation, maybe left the family behind. He got on the midnight train to go back to that town. <laughs> canceled everything. By the next morning, he was there, and he shut that place down. One, two, three. That's the kind of energy and tuktukite you have to have to make something like that work. Now, um... He was one of these German rabbis. You know, he liked to paint and all this sort of thing. You know, he had the, the German rabbi had the, the Western bourgeois sensibilities. Samson Revelers liked to play the flute. Marcus Lehman used to go horseback riding. Karl Bach used to go ice skating. You know, these are not things you associate with the Gareppi or something like that. But they're all very from people, as you can understand. Okay? All very from people. Um, so I just share this with you to give you an idea of what it was like to live in a time in which Orthodox Jewry was under constant pressure, even though there was religious freedom, and they had to have leaders and rabbis who knew how to work the system, um, always with an honesty. Uh, you can't have any, uh, you know, like I say, a double standard stick. They can't play anybody. They have to be they're very straightforward, but you have to become an expert in lobbying uh, and do a lot of work behind the scenes and not boast about it. Like, in, oh, I just went to Senator so-and-so and I put it out on the internet. It's the reverse of who our hero was in that generation. They worked always behind the scenes and they were quite successful. The larger, histor in my opinion, the larger historical um, significance of this, perhaps, Although what I just described was pretty significant was that it laid the foundation for um, a, a distinctly orthodox kind of political um, lobbying for orthodox uh, purposes. He was in Agudas before there was in Aguda. Matter of fact, if you know the years... He started being a rabbi in 1877, which was the last decade of the life of Samson Hirsch. Uh, in the last 
four or five years of his life, actually the last three years of his life, when Hirsch was in his late 70s, he started a proto-Aguda, uh, a German organization, the thing was called Freie Vereinigung, which was the free union for the interests of Orthodox Judaism. The point of which was, to use American terminology, don't use the federations to speak on behalf of the Jewish community, and don't use you know, the non from general organizations. They don't understand the from needs. And they have their way, we have our way. And as part of Hirsch's idea, you should have a separate show and a separate community should also have a separate lobbying organization. When you can work together with them, you work together with them. But there are times that you need, as we would say today, a good. But this is a good policy long before the good started. It's 1888. This is 25 years before the Aguda started. This is why the Yekis were major figures in the founding of the Aguda. Um, they needed the Eastern Europeans and the others, but they already had a background. Our hero was one of the major, maybe the major lobbyists for this free union because he was a Hirschian. Um, he didn't learn by Hirsch, right? He knew him mainly in the last decade of his life. He held from him. Um... He knew all the books of Hirsch and that you'll never find anything in the writings of Hirsch that you have to be ashamed of when you say can't show it to somebody because Hirsch always writes very high, by high Madrega and a high uh, spirit. And even people, even Goyim and others will, will, will understand it. Um, this bishop I mentioned before became a cardinal. He had like his national jubilee. It was a, a national holiday in Germany. 1904, and our hero sent him a present. Um, you know, for years of friendship with the Jewish community and friendship, personal friendship. What did he send him? He sent the, art, the cardinal, he sent him a Harshchumish set. Why? Why not? What do you have to be ashamed of? Even a guy, if he'll take the trouble to read Hirsch, if he can read the Hebrew words, you'll find nothing in there that's not admirable. You'll find nothing in there that puts anybody down. You find nothing in there, but you say, I I don't want somebody else to see this. Um, you know, dirty linen or something like that. And, in fact, these type of rabbis, anytime there was a bar mitzvah, a wedding, or a thing like that, you always give them a copy of a Hirsch something or other. This is how it was done in those days. Because it's in German, you know, everybody can read it. You know, 19 letters, the Chorev, the Chumash, the, all the other stuff over there. Uh, so, it was just an interesting type, you understand? Very interesting type, but you never go wrong, so to speak. It was giving somebody a Hirsch thing to do. And I'm sure every bar mitzvah or whatever, he always gave him a, you know, something from the Hirsch. And also, by the way, he was a big uh, macher in the uh, Shari Tzedek Hospital, which is the front Yeki Hospital, Yerushalayim. I remember he had this shtick. Every time he performed a wedding, you know, so you'd always give a speech, of course, under the chuppah. And he always had a shtick like this. And now that you're getting married, I'm sure I know what you're. You want to live a life of mitzvos, and the first joint mitzvah you want to do as a couple, this uh, new chash appear in your life, you want to give tzedakah for the hospital in Yerushalayim for Shari Tzedek. You know, have to make a donation. So it was, you know, very interesting in that way. And um, yeah, what can I tell you? Now, he was successful enough that when he died, his son began to rabbi after him. So that's usually a pretty good sign. Okay? So he was there for, I don't know, how many decades? 
40 years. He died in the first year, January 1, 1920. So it means he died in 1919, end of 1919. So he was there for more, more than 40 years. Um, as I said before, you felt that he's the boss. This was not true everywhere in Germany. Um, in many places, the Orthodox was a small minion within the larger community. This is the way the social dynamics went. Now, in Hirsch's case, he had a millionaire group, so it's different. But generally speaking, you had a, a, a broad Jewish community with a small Orthodox element. In his case, he was able to make it, you know, the Chinuch and everything else, make it a bastion of Orthodoxy. Um, if there would have been three or four or five more guys like him with his you know, talents uh, and energy, then instead of 10, 15%, probably it would have been 15%, 20%. That's the, in my opinion, in my guess. You couldn't change the whole German jury. Um, and as I said before, where I was going was, the most significant part of this, in my opinion, is this whole lobbying and a good idea inspired successors in the German rabbinate. And when German, when World War I came, he was too old in World War I. When World War I came, his imitators were Orthodox German rabbis and the Klaw uh, Askanim, who accompanied the German army when they conquered Eastern Europe, because that's what they did in World War I. In 1915, they conquered Poland and part of Lithuania. In 1916, the rest of Poland and Lithuania. The German army ruled Eastern Europe, where the Jews were, the kingdom of Poland, as we say, during World War I. They were in charge of Lithuania, Latvia, Belarus, Poland, and so forth. Ukraine, huge Jewish populations. And the question was, how would they deal with them? And these rabbis, inspired, I would say, by people like Rabbi Michael Kahn, um, undertook to do the same kind of lobbying and psyching out of the German military mind and knowing how to approach these guys behind the scenes. And they were pretty successful. And they saved a lot of the yeshivas and the chinuch, this, that, and the other. And they even brought in the German methods of um, trying to organize chinuch, which you and I today call day schools and base yakos, um, in the First World War and in the years after the First World War. I did a series on that a couple of years ago on the videos. It's on the YouTube somewhere um, about the impact of World War One and post-World War One, which is not well known, but which just affects you and I today. Uh, here today, I've been speaking at the forerunner of that. Somebody who turned, um, again, the lobbying into art form, but was able to do it, I want to emphasize, because he had a secular education in terms of, in addition to being very from, um, because he had that doctorate, that gave him creds where, uh, it, where otherwise it wouldn't have gone anywhere. So this is Germany once upon a time. This is Hess. And um, I'll, I'll end with this. I want to thank again Nissim Scheiman, um, Wilson Mazel. And um, with that, I'll bid you a good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.